For the next few minutes, we're going to spend our time reading from God's Word and applying to our lives Psalm 63. So please turn in your Bible to Psalm 63, page 449, in the Black Pew Bibles. Psalm 63 on page 449 in the Black Pew Bibles is our text for us today. And I think it is relevant. Even if you're under the age of 40, I think God's word, and some of you are here because you believe this as well, but apparently many 40-year-olds and younger think that what we're doing right now in church is a waste of time. And this has been increasingly the case since the year 2000. Last year, American membership in houses of worship fell below 50% for the first time since the Gallup poll started its authoritative religious survey every year. In 1937, When this poll began, it was, at that time, seven out of ten Americans who were attending church. But just before the pandemic in 2020, the number dropped to 47%. And this is not just Christians. This is Americans going to a church, a synagogue, or a mosque, any house of worship. This trend downward has especially taken a nosedive after the year 2000, where young people in particular are rejecting organized religion, and therefore Christian churches all over are facing an existential crisis. What I just read to you was from NPR. My brother sent me this article yesterday. And NPR says American Christianity is in the midst of an existential and an identity crisis. Because of this steep decline, and especially amongst people who are 40 and younger, millennials and Gen Zers. And here's the quote that struck me. These young people say traditional church doesn't speak to their realities. Well, whatever you want to call embassy church. Me standing up and preaching a sermon is kind of traditional church, is it not? Singing songs, reading scripture. This is what Christian church has been doing for 2,000 years. So the exercise of me standing up, reading the Bible, and then teaching you and preaching to you, especially this word preach, I don't think we like it today. Young people, do you like to be preached at? Do you like the freedom to do whatever you think is best? Well, God's word, I think, tells us something greater than whatever the young people of our generation think is real. We come to church because there is God's word speaking to us a greater, deeper reality than just what is on the face of the earth. Just what is physical, tangible, immediate, imminent, In other words, church is a great way for you to experience transcendence, worship, something bigger and greater and more beyond yourself, deeper. 
And there is a quote for me that when I was young and in my early 20s, I read it in a John Piper book, but this quote was the thesis of an entire book he wrote called The Pleasures of God, and it's a quote by Henry Skogel, Skogel. And he says, the worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. Whether you're young or old, I would suggest to you that Psalm 63 dives into these truths. The worth and the value of a soul. What makes a human worth anything? It will largely be dependent upon the object of its love. And I believe these realities, and Psalm 63 speaking into these realities, are especially relevant for any of you that are 40 or younger. But they're good for all of us. So let's read God's word together and see whether or not my hypothesis, my thesis for you is correct. Psalm 63. It deeply speaks into the deepest reality of your very existence. A Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water, so have I looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. In the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. And my prayer is that he would write its truth on all of our hearts and that it would help us see the measure of our own soul. Amen? If I were to sum it up this way, I would say what David does in the wilderness is determined by his deepest delight. Psalm 63 tells us what David does in the wilderness. And I believe Psalm 63 is a poetic expression of David's deepest longings, desires, the thing that he loves the most. What David does in the wilderness is determined by his deepest delight. So what I want to do is this. I want you to first understand David in the wilderness and how what he's doing in Psalm 63 
is determined by his delights. Then I want to apply it. I want to think about us. My guess is you're already seeing where this is going. Your value, your worth, your identity of what it means to just exist as a human is going to be dependent upon the delight of your heart. And it will drive everything that you do. So we should think about that. We should apply that to us. Perhaps, young or old, you might find that your reality today. And then finally, I want you to consider the greater David, Jesus Christ. I want you to think about how he too was in the wilderness. And he did based on his deepest delight. First, let's look at our psalm. Let's notice that it's a psalm of David. That's why we're starting with him, what David did. And when he was in the wilderness and we're told of Judah, which could mean two different occasions in David's life. Isn't that crazy? You ever have a season of hard times, deep depression, struggle? David literally was in the wilderness because people were chasing him for his life. Look at verse 9. But those who seek to destroy my life. When David is in the wilderness, it is because either King Saul, who's on the throne at the present time of the first wilderness journey, is chasing David because of the threat that David is to Saul's throne. That's wilderness number one. Or fast forward, Saul's dead, David's on the throne, and David again is driven out into the wilderness And this time it's because his own son wants to take David out. People make arguments for both cases. I don't think it's really obvious which is better. I don't think it really matters. But the wilderness is about testing. David's going through a test, a trial. What's he going to do under the pressure and the heat of the sun? David turns to God. He tells us about it. This is not a model prayer because if you read through carefully, you'll notice that this is now two psalms in a row where David doesn't ask a single thing from God. These two psalms this week and last week, I believe, are wisdom psalms for you to learn about David's life as an example for you. How many times... Do you and I get into a time of testing and immediately what we do when we turn to God is, God, take it away. Get me out. The wilderness is typically associated with a long time of testing. David got two of them. David says, first, verse one, Just notice what he does. Let's notice the verbs. Verse 1. I seek you because you are my God. I thirst for you. I faint for you. Verse 2. I have looked upon you and beheld your power and glory. Verse 3. My lips will praise you because of your steadfast love that is better than life. Verse 4, I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands, which is a a posture of worship throughout the Old Testament. 
one of many postures. Blessing, lifting up of hands, praising of lips, beholding, looking, thirsting, fainting, earnestly seeking. Some translations, by the way, in verse 1, translate earnestly early because the root word here is actually prominence and it could mean like the first thing you do in the day. What's of first priority in your life? That's the word, earnest. And it could be temporal, as in like time period. Is it the first thing David does when he wakes up in the wilderness? I seek you. Or is it qualitative? More than anything, I'm seeking you. The quality of the seeking is earnest. It's prominent. That's verses 1 through 4. Are you seeing what David does in a time of testing? Well, he keeps going. Verses 5 to 8. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth again will praise with joyful lips. So praise, remembering. Second half of verse 6, meditating. This is the word for whispering. The picture is of one, and it's the same word used in Psalm 1. It's good for you to link back to Psalm 1 when you see this word meditate. Because the man who is the blessed man in the Psalms is the one that meditates day and night on the Torah, the law, the instruction of God. And David says, I meditate on you, presumably through the Torah, through the word of God. He is God-centered because he is word-saturated. And meditating is whispering to oneself, like murmuring, mumbling. It's as if he's reading the scriptures out loud to himself all night long. I meditate on you in the watches of the night. How did verse 1 potentially begin? First thing I do in the morning, what do I do as I lie on my bed at night? What's David doing in a time of testing? He begins and ends his day with God. Because God is his help, the shadow under his wings. So he sings and he clings. That's the same word used in Genesis chapter 2, 24. A man will leave his father and his mother and he will cling, cleave, be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. That's an intimate union between a man and a woman that is now being used to describe that's the kind of clinging and covenant and commitment that David has, even in a time of trial and testing. And then you notice that the way that the psalm ends is that he has future hope, that even though he's in this time and trial of testing, that those who are trying to seek his life will go down to the depths of the earth. They will die, and they will be given over by the power of the sword, and then their portion will be for jackals, which was an animal that would have eaten carcasses. So this is a gruesome picture of death, destruction, and ultimate removal from David's life and threat. And then the psalm concludes, verse 11. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of the liars will be stopped. It's kind of important to realize that some of the times that David was going out into the wilderness, especially with Absalom, was because of deceit on the the mouths and the lips of some of his closest friends. And we've covered that in previous weeks. But he was not just physically 
being threatened. He was verbally being threatened, persecuted in every which way. And there's David. So, point two, part two. This is what David did in the wilderness, in the time of testing. How about us? Well, I think it's largely going to depend upon whether or not God is your God. So doctrine fuels desire, and desire shapes decisions. All of these things are related. What we do when we open up God's word is to shape our mind and our heart and our whole being around the God who is. Oh God, you are my God. Brothers and sisters, first and foremost, realize at the foundational level, you do what you do based on the things that you love, the desires of one's heart, the things you delight most in. This is true of David, and it should be true of us. How can a guy go in the middle of the desert when people are facing, when he is facing persecution, his life being destroyed, And him turn to the Lord in the midst of that and do all of these things. Seek, thirst, faint, look, behold, long for. And the answer is clear and explicit throughout Psalm 63. Because, verse 3 says, your hesed love is better than life itself. Your hesed, steadfast, covenant, faithful love is better than living. I'd rather die. No wonder he's not just throwing up petition after petition. God, get me out of the wilderness. Although we see by the end of the psalm, he does want that. But it's because he knows that more than anything, he wants a relationship with God, a personal relationship. Do you talk to God the way David does? Is there a reflection of your own prayer that could be seen in this psalm. My God. My wife, her name's Christine. My children. My church, embassy. It takes a very intimate, special kind of relationship for you to be a my. Personal. Intimate. David begins by saying, oh God, You are my God. Earnestly, I seek you, perhaps early in the morning. And if not early in the morning, I have a zeal towards seeking you that is like being in a dry and weary land where there is no water, which it just so happens that's exactly where he is in this psalm. In the desert, in the wilderness. And he's saying this physical experience is a great way of explaining his spiritual depth in his heart of longing, thirsting, his flesh fainting. The word soul is about the animation of life, and the word flesh is about the physical flesh. And they're paired together so that you understand he's not trying to make a division between the two, but saying the whole being has a earnest longing for the Lord. So, When you're tested, it's flu season. It's the COVID pandemic ongoing. It's RSV is rampant. 
Do you ever feel weak because of physical sickness? Do little children in your house feel weak? And it tests your patience, tests your sanity, it tests your faith in whether or not God is good. Brothers and sisters, there's a variety of circumstances that we might find ourselves in that at least metaphorically might feel to us like a wilderness. And I want you to look at them like the book of James does. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of various kind. Trials based on circumstance. Trials based on your own sin that put you in a distant, far off. God feels not near. But I'm longing for him because he feels so far away. I want you to embrace those moments in life as an opportunity for you to have all the other stuff cleared away and a clear direct window into the value of your soul and your heart. Typically when I'm meeting with people, they like to make excuses for, well, I said that, but it was because I was really tired. I didn't get a good night's sleep the night before. Oh, no, no, no. The lack of sleep the testing in the wilderness, whether it's one day from a sleepless night or a long season because you have a newborn baby and you haven't slept for weeks or you've got a sick spouse and you've been caring for them for day after day, that circumstance provided the opportunity for the sun to bake on you like being in the wilderness and it to just melt everything else away and reveal to you what's really going on in your heart. It would be best if we don't make excuses for circumstances and instead own up in our confession of sin and in our examination of our own life to realize, do I want more than anything for this circumstance to change or to be near the God of the universe? Do we say what David does? Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. I will bless you as long as I live, morning or evening, meditating on you in the watches of the night as I remember you on my bed. I wonder if any of us even just need the reminder that the Christian gospel, the Bible, can provide some of the greatest experiences that you will ever experience in this life. Some of the reason why young people might be fleeing churches is because churches are not giving their church members God, the glory, the power. David is in Psalm 63 saying, I will bless you and in your name I will lift up my hands because of your steadfast love, but also because he beheld God's power and his glory. I wonder if some of us want to go find glory in lesser things in the world instead of the church because the church has too often been impotent to offer us the power of God through his word. Charles Spurgeon says this, and this is convicting. Some of us know at times what it is to be almost too happy to live. 
The love of God has been so overpoweringly experienced by us on some occasions that we have almost had to ask God to take away this delight because we could not endure it anymore. If the glory had not been veiled a little bit, we would have died for excessive happiness. Oh, beloved, God has wondrous ways of opening his people's hearts to the manifestation of his grace. He can pour in, not now and then, a little drop of love, but he pours in mighty rivers of love. Do you all even believe that that's there for you in the Bible? Some of us need the encouragement today to hear a word from Spurgeon and then go talk to someone in this church that's been a Christian for a long time. They may not say it the exact same way, but they will probably be more so the ones in this gathering that are saying, I know what he's talking about. And I want to offer that to you, not just as a convicting word of... I I have never experienced what Spurgeon's talking about, but rather offer it to you of this is actually what all of us are headed toward if we have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not a pie-in-the-sky fantasy, but rather a kind of soul that has the capacity to receive the fullness of this stream of God's love. And too often... When you're tired, when you're hungry, when you're hangry, when your kids are sick, you will notice the thing that you reach for the quickest to be the thing that you find to be some little dose of dopamine comfort. It might be that phone, that Netflix special. It might be that bottle of alcohol. It might be that phone call with a friend to just share and talk. Some of these things could be good. Some of these things, not so good. The point is, David in the wilderness reaches for God. And my brothers and sisters, I want to exhort you to know that your soul and its worth will largely be determined to the degree that you're being driven by love for God. This is fundamental to discipleship. If you would like to think, how can I get better at discipleship? It would be start with this big idea. Your delight will drive your decisions. And your decisions will shape everything about who you do, who you are and what you do. Human beings fundamentally are made by and for God. And where else are you going to get these kind of encouragements outside of the church? So those of you that are under 40, this is the preaching to the choir. But don't give up. Don't quit. Don't think that there is some sort of immediate felt need that the world has to offer. Realize, as David does, that who you and I are will largely be determined by the thing that we will find the most valuable. The good news for all of us, is that Jesus Christ, the greatest human that ever walked this earth, he found that the most valuable thing on the earth was in fact the love of the Father. His soul is the purest soul that ever existed. 
And so when he was in the wilderness, as we had read for us in Luke chapter 4, when he was in the wilderness for 40 days and didn't eat a single piece of bread, the tempter brought to him a rock and says, turn this stone to bread. And he says what? Man does not live by bread alone. And then Matthew's gospel adds, but by the word of God. Jesus Christ reveals for us what it means to be human. What it means to be not just any human, but the supreme and most valuable human that's ever walked the earth. Way greater than what David ever did. Sure, David delighted in the Lord and sought after him. A man whose heart was yearning for the things of God. But we know that David, just like all of us, was a sinner. That he died in his sin. And that if it weren't for his faith in the one true God, he would perish like the men in verses 9 and 10. So then the hope for you and me is that there is a greater David. That the Christmas season tells us that Jesus Christ lived in flesh, bones, and soul. And that this is history and reality. I don't offer you some abstract idea of transcendence up in the sky. Just look into the blank sky and pray to a God. Who knows if he's there? Transcendence became eminence. Eternal, infinite, supreme glory became contained into the person of Jesus Christ, the baby in the manger. And that God displayed for us every moment of every day what it would look like to seek after the will of the Lord and not say a word or do an action apart from the will of the Heavenly Father. It's breathtaking to think about the perfect record of his righteousness his full obedience of the law, and that there was not a single test that he went through, any temptation that he endured, that he then gave up and gave in. I love the fact that C.S. Lewis points out the fact that you and I, when we quickly turn to these lesser glories, it shows how weak our hearts really are, how little and small our souls, the worth of them, the value of them. But it's the one who presses on in the midst of adversity, that person is showing the greater strength. And for his entire life, Jesus did not give in. Not just in that one moment, 40 days, when he's really, really hungry and been tempted bread. He lives by the word of God. His will and his purpose is the will of God. Similarly, think about the way that David in Psalm 63 talks about how this is found in the sanctuary, verse 2. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. Again, brothers and sisters, what the church can offer is the greatest power and the most beautiful glory that if you would set your eyes upon it, you might, in fact, start loving and valuing the most infinite power and glory that exists. Jesus Christ in his supreme glory talks to a woman at a well in John chapter 4 
And they're talking about the appropriate place for worship, this mountain or that mountain. Similarly, David in Psalm 63 is telling us, well, here is the place, the correct location to behold the power and the glory of God. But in a turn of events in John chapter 4, as they're at a well, he tells this woman who has had five different husbands that if she knew who he was, she'd be asking for the living water. That if she were to drink of this water, she would never thirst again. And her soul would be satisfied. Go read John 4 and think about Psalm 63 in this light. Jesus Christ is the bread of life that we feast on so that we're satisfied like verse 5. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. My lips... And my mouth will sing joyful praise to the Lord. And we can do that now as New Testament, New Covenant Christians because of Jesus coming into the world, passing the test. And when the ultimate test came before him and he was in the Garden of Gethsemane praying to the Lord, Lord, I really don't want to experience this kind of infinite suffering but not my will, yours be done. Steadfast love was better than life itself for Jesus Christ in the greatest moment of temptation and trial that there ever was on the earth. The greatest human on the earth passed the test. So consider the cross, as David tells us, remembering upon your bed. When you go to bed tonight, meditate in the watches of the night. Watches of the night mean throughout the night. Sounds like David's not getting good sleep in the wilderness. Watches of the night. I was woken up a lot this week in the middle of the night. And I needed this reminder all week long. Throughout the night, I want to be remembering and meditating on the power and the glory and the love of God that has been displayed for us as Jesus, the God-man, died on a cross. What he did was determined by the thing that he delighted in the most. And the thing that the son delighted in the most, we know throughout the gospels, is the glory of his father. The most valuable soul. If you want ambition, something to strive for, a reason to live, why am I on this earth? Friends, Psalm 63, it points us in the right direction. This is reality. This is your reality. The question is whether or not you think that your decisions are being determined by something else. Test it. Be a skeptic, by all means. I'd love to meet up and talk about it. Do you have a better way of explaining why you do what you do? I think this ancient wisdom from Psalm 63 is superior to anything that's ever been written in a book or been spoken from a stage. It is the word of God Almighty. And I say, put it to the test. Think about your decisions, trace them back to your desires. And how are those desires being driven by the thing that you love and long for the most? So brothers and sisters, if we're not doing this in our self-examination, but especially in our discipleship in the local church, in our counseling sessions, in our meetings, with your elders, then we are hardly scratching the surface and I think you have every reason to leave this church. Because that 
is not the Christian religion. Christian religion is not just about do this, don't do that. Do this and do that because God has done this in Jesus Christ. And this love that's displayed in him is better than life itself. I hope and pray that you will receive this word as it needs to be applied. Let's pray now together for his help in that. Our Heavenly Father, we want to give you praise and thanks for sending your son Jesus into the world and revealing to us the most weighty and valuable soul that's ever lived. Thank you for telling us really what your heart is. We praise you, God, for sending the Holy Spirit into the world so that you can open our eyes to see and behold your power and your glory. We thank you that all of us in this room, if we are here today because we are seeking, earnestly seeking you, it's only because you first sought us. You sent Jesus to seek and save the lost. If we love you, it's because you first loved us. Thank you, Father, for the love of God in Christ. Thank you for the seeking love of Jesus. Thank you, Father, that if any of us cling to you and hold on to faith and trust and belief in the Bible, even when we're being tested and the wilderness feels like it's 40 years long, thank you that your right hand is strong enough to uphold us every second of the wilderness. Oh God, we do not hold on to you alone. You first held us by your righteous, omnipotent right hand. So we thank you, God, for what you've revealed to us in your word. And we want to pray that the spirit of God would convict us of sin and comfort us of Christ's righteousness. And that we would be so encouraged by what we hear and see in your word. And Lord, lastly, we want to pray that whatever you're doing in America and whatever's happening with 40-year-olds and younger, would you see fit that Embassy Church is faithful and that you would multiply and fill this church and many others only because of your mercy and only because of our commitment to put forth week after week your word and your gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.